0: Good morning. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It is the first Sunday of Advent. We're allowed to say that now. We weren't allowed to say it last week. I hate it when we have that Sunday that's not Advent, but it's after Thanksgiving. It feels like you should say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's going to be a very Merry Christmas, a very Romans Christmas. We're in Romans 13, and what we're really doing now in Romans is we're in our fifth week of discussing what it looks like, what it means to be a Christian. What does that look like? There are two ways to live. One is to be conformed to the pattern of this world. The other is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There are two options. Once by default, we're all just sort of conformed and conforming ourselves to the pattern of this world. But for those who belong to Jesus, there's another option, and that's to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like a life of love. It looks like a life of love, of caring for one another, of putting others before us, of loving even our enemies, of respecting authority, as we talked about last week. And today, in the spirit of Christmas, it looks like being a giver rather than being a taker. The Lord Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, and that's something that we're all born believing and knowing, right? Everybody is just born knowing it's better, more blessed to give than receive, right? No, not you? No? Okay, Uh, kids, kids at home, how many of you have Christmas lists? Yeah, all right, Christmas lists, Uh, my kids have been working on their Christmas lists since uh, the day after the last time they opened presents last year, right? (laughs) Step one of forming a good Christmas list is looking at all the things that you didn't get on your list from last year and just sort of rolling it over to the next year. Step two is looking at all the cool things that your brothers and sisters got that you didn't get, and then adding those to your list. So Christmas really gets you a good start on your Christmas list for the next year. Then as you go throughout the course of the year, everybody's birthday, every cool thing that you see on YouTube just sort of adds to the list until you get to Thanksgiving, and, or to really Halloween, and then the list is huge and it's massive. And then mom and dad have to sort of Work with you to pare the list down and say things like, You know, sweetheart, uh, you can't ask grandma and grandpa for a jetpack this Christmas. Yes, I know they can afford it. That's what scares me. <laughs> no, you can't have a flamethrower. Why? Because we just got a dog. And I don't like the combination. <laughs> Bad news. Yes, I too would like a bigger house. With a pool table and an arcade in the basement and a pool in the backyard. But I don't think it's fair to ask Uncle Matt for that. That's a little too much. Sound familiar? Yes. Maybe minus the flamethrowers? The flamethrowers are a real thing in our house. Yeah, he was like, Yeah, <laughs> I want that. Um, <clears throat> so here's a question Compared to the time, kids, that you spent making and perfecting, I'm talking to you, Abraham. Compare it to the time that you spent perfecting and making your Christmas list. How much time did you spend working on the presents that you plan to give this year? I know that some of you have, right? You have. It's really sweet. It's a cool thing. You've sat down and you've thought about it carefully. You've planned out your gifts. You got excited about giving good gifts to other people. It really is fun to put effort into that sort of thing and to watch other people open something that you've put love into, right? Right? But if that's you, I'm going to make a guess. And my guess is that you had to be taught to do that. That was something that your parents taught you. It wasn't something that came naturally. We have to be taught that it's more blessed to give than receive, right? Does anyone have to be taught to want to receive? Does anybody have to be taught to take? No, of course not. If we're honest, on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, what are we most excited about? We're probably most excited about the thing that we're going to be getting, right? Right? We still have some excitement about, oh, yeah, Ian's going to open that gift I got him. But also, what am I going to get? We're excited about presents. And that's fun. It's a good thing. I don't want to take that away, okay? Kids, we love seeing you be excited about your gifts on Christmas morning. We love it. I don't want you to feel bad about loving gifts and loving those who gave them to you, okay? God's a good giver. God wants us to be excited about the gifts he gives us. He wants us to rejoice in them and to acknowledge them and to be thankful and to be excited and to thank him for the gifts that he's given us. That's a good thing, too. Okay, I don't want us to feel bad about that, but I do want us to stop and think for half a second. We are naturally selfish people, right? Right? Our whole lives are that way. By nature, we're takers first, not givers. And there are people that we meet in life who only know how to take. And even their giving is a kind of taking. And there are people who know how to give. And people who know how to give generally also know how to receive, which is different than taking. But we have to learn, we have to be taught, we have to be transformed into givers, because by nature we're takers, and that starts from the time that we're born, from the time that we're toddling around. Did anybody have to teach their toddlers to take things from other people or from other kids to take toys? No, but we do have to teach them to share, right? Selfishness is the one thing you don't have to teach your kids. From the time they're born, your kids know about two things, breathe, poop, and take, And they don't even know how to eat right. you got to teach them that too. You have to teach them to eat. You have to teach them to tie their shoes, to put on clothes, to walk. And we're still doing that when they're teenagers. We don't have to teach them how to take what they want. We don't have to teach them how to be selfish. And that goes for toddlers, and it goes for teenagers, and it goes for 20-somethings, and it goes for newlyweds, and it goes all the way up to the very end. We're all the same. And here's the thing, if we live our lives conform to the pattern of this world, we're gonna be a bunch of takers who are fixated on our needs and on our wants, fixated on getting what we think we need and want from others. And we'll just move from one season of life to the next, to the next, to the next, thinking the next season, the next thing will finally get us the thing that we want. If I can only get to high school and get a little bit more freedom in my life, if I can only get a car, If I can only get a girlfriend or a boyfriend, if I can only get to college or if I can only get out of the house or if I can only get that job, if I only get married and find some other person who will give me finally whatever it is I feel like I'm lacking, if we can have kids, if I can just get out of this marriage so I can find the thing that I think I'm lacking that I should have got in this marriage, if I can only make this career change, if I can only live in that neighborhood, if I can only just make it to retirement, just get to retirement, if I can only just get the grandkids to come visit me more. If I can only stay out of the nursing home as long as possible. And it's just one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, all the way to the one thing that we know and have always known would happen, but never believed would actually happen, which is we die and go to the grave, still wanting, still looking for the next thing. And that's the pattern of this world and it's empty. It leads to death and destruction and a life of loneliness and bitterness and misery because nothing and no one in this world is going to give you what you think you want, what you think you deserve. So do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So with that in mind, turn to Romans 13. We're going to start this morning with the last verse that we touched on last week, and then we'll go to the end of the chapter. Okay, the last verse of last week leads directly into this week's passage. So Romans 13, beginning in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, so somebody came to Jesus one time and said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered and said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right? Right? that's Romans 1 through 11, right? Being loved by God and loving God. And the second is like it, and that's 12 to the end, which is love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets, right? That's what Jesus says. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. All God's law comes down to this, love God and love your neighbor. To love your neighbor is to earnestly seek his good, Love seeks the good of others. It doesn't wrong. It doesn't take. It's out to give. And the world, is a world full of false love, full of people who make a show of love. But the goal is not to give. The goal is to get. It's a manipulative sort of love where you make a show of love in order to get what you want. It's a using of other people, not loving them. So if you're going to be a giver, if you're going to be a lover, where do you start? If you're going to give... You have to start by getting out of debt. You have to pay your debts. You have to pay what you owe. So that you are free to give. And so we begin by talking about paying what you owe. Giving what you owe. And Paul starts here with literal money. He starts with literal money. Now he doesn't end with it. But he starts there. Why? Because as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of the best ways to examine our hearts is to examine where our money goes. Where does it go? Where do you spend it? Have you ever tracked your spending and watched? It will tell you a lot. How much of your money goes to hobbies, or to keeping up with the Joneses, or to your kids, or to school, or to sports, or to your health, or beauty, or appearance, or to your retirement? How much of it goes to the kingdom of God? That verse can also be true. Do you want to change the direction that your heart is moving in? Change the direction your money goes. Discipline your heart by disciplining your money, your spending. It's really easy to think that our love and our money are not connected, that they're somehow split, divided. I love my wife. I just never spend money on her. All my money goes to my toys. I love God. I love God's kingdom. I love my church. I just don't support the mission and work of God or God's people. I don't tithe. That's not the way it works. How you spend your money reveals where your treasure really is, where your heart really is. When it comes to possessions, to money and things, there are only two ways to approach them. We're either loving money and things and using people to serve our God of money and things, or we're loving people and using things and money to serve our God and others. You will love money and use people, or you will use money to love people, period. And the man who says he loves his wife and his family, but whose dollars go principally to his hobbies and toys, then he runs and hides. He's using his family. He's taking, he's not giving. The Christian who says they love God and God's people, but whose dollars don't go to support the mission of God's people, but instead go to building the bank account, they're using God's people, taking and not giving. Come, be encouraged, challenged, have some community, but without giving back in time and service and in dollars. That's a consumer. That's not a family member. That's a taker, not a giver. Generosity of soul, of heart, of time, of money—they all go hand in hand. And it's easy to kid ourselves and think we can be generous in one sort of isolated, compartmentalized area of our lives, but not in others. But that's not the case. Godliness doesn't work that way. You can't compartmentalize it. It spreads everywhere. If you're stingy over here, you'll be stingy over there. If you're selfish over here, you'll be selfish over there. So don't owe anything, he says, especially to those who love you. When it comes to God and the church, offer to the Lord the first fruits of all he's given to you. I don't like to talk about money because I don't want you to think we're here for your money. We're not. But the Bible talks a lot about money and Jesus talks a lot about money. And that's because money has a lot to do with your soul and your heart. And we can't not talk about it. It's so a Tithe. Give. Ten percent's the bare basic standard God established in the Old Testament. Anything above that's an offering. And no times are tight. Have faith for it. Tithe, and if God's blessed you above and beyond, consider how you can go above and beyond to build God's kingdom. Support the work of the church and watch God bless that work and bless you through it. It's a cliche, but it's true. You can't outgive God. So that's God. When it comes to the government, pay your taxes. You may not love the government or how the government spends your money, but Jesus paid his taxes and it's the way the world is. And you don't wanna get caught owing them anything. Don't give them a reason to hurt you or your family or the people you love over money. Just pay your taxes, it's not worth it. It doesn't matter if you think it's just, it doesn't matter if you think it's fair, it doesn't matter if you don't like where it's going. Don't give them a reason to hurt you and your family. Honor the authorities God's put over you. Pay your taxes. If you owe someone something, if you owe anyone anything, pay your debts. Pay back your creditors. Trust that God sees and knows. We all know, we all have felt inflation push everybody towards more debt, right? Everybody is getting pushed towards more debt. Cost of living has risen much faster than the ability of many, many people to meet the need, to make money, to support their families. Consumer credit card debt, if you look at it, has just gone through the roof. I know we've all felt that pressure, or many of us have. It's a dangerous place to be. We have to fight our way out of our debts. We have to pay our debts because things will only get worse and our ability to give and to love and to serve and to share will be hindered by our debts. The borrower, as Proverbs says, is slave to the lender. And it doesn't matter if you think, okay, well, they're just designing a system that makes us all slaves. They're just trying to enslave us all under debt. Okay, well, what are you going to do? Lay down? Complain or find a way to fight out. God desires that we be free. Free to serve him and free to serve others. Easier said than done, I know. But pray and work and trust God. Don't owe God, don't owe the government, don't owe the creditors, don't owe the corporations. Pay your debts financially. Financially and pay your debts in terms of respect and honor. Don't let anyone in your life who deserves respect or honor feel like they lack it from you. Carrying weight, carrying authority, carrying responsibility is hard. It's difficult. It's an uphill battle. It's is it easy to be a husband? Is it easy to be a father? Is it easy to be a mother? It's not kids, you can't know and understand that until you're one yourself. It's hard work. Is it easy to be a boss? We think it's easy to be a boss when we're the guy under the boss, and then we become the boss, and we realize it's not easy to be the boss. All the decisions that they make and all the stupid things they do looks really stupid and easy and simple from the bottom up. But when you carry the weight and the responsibility and actually understand how things have to work, it's not so easy. Is it easy to be a mayor or a governor or a senator? Anybody in here carried that weight, that office? It's easy to be critical. It's hard to carry the weight. Is it easy to be a pastor or an elder? To be a pastor and elder, you have to fight against your own sins and temptations. You have to lead by example. You have to constantly be fighting to set aside your own feelings and your own needs and your own wants and your own desires to love and care for and serve others. You have to fight to put yourself in other people's heads and hearts and homes, and you have to figure out how to help them. You have to figure out what to say and how to say the thing that they need to hear when they need to hear it. How to lead them in a way that will be actually helpful and produce fruit. It's not easy. In all these places, leadership requires effort and weight of responsibility and sacrifice. And it's hard to understand until you've borne it yourself. It's easy to take for granted. And as Americans, we have a natural suspicion of authority. But there are people that God has placed over your life as authorities. To love you, to care for you, and to help you. They're your parents, they're your pastors, they're your boss, your teachers, your coaches. And by and large, those people are working hard to make your life better. And they deserve your respect, and they deserve honor for that. They're not perfect. No authority is. And it doesn't matter because you're not perfect either. We're not perfect. Honor those God's placed over you. When you disagree, be respectful. When they're out of the room, when you're at play and pray or at men's group, be respectful. Make them feel and know the gratitude you have for the work that they do. Give everyone what you owe them because God is a God who sees and cares about how we respond to authority. And that's because all authorities bear the image of his fatherhood. Showing gratitude to those God has placed over you is a way to show gratitude to God. Okay, so the bottom line then, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. There's only one debt that we should have. And that's a debt that we can't repay. It's the continual debt to love others as God has loved us. How has God loved us? Perfectly. Infinitely. Without qualification. Without condition. And that's the one duty, the one obligation, the one debt that he's placed on us. To imitate that. To be like him. To love as he has loved. Forever. That's it. That's how we fulfill the law of God. That's how we honor God. That's how we honor the Heavenly Father who called us and adopted us into his household, into his family, and showed us love while we were still his enemies. And that's the kind of love he calls us to. God, the maker of heaven and earth, loves us with an infinite, eternal love so that we have the love that we need to love others, even our enemies, just like him. So that our love doesn't depend on what we get and what we can take from other people or what they give to us. So we don't have to be takers, we can be givers. In Jesus, the love of God doesn't have any contingencies, it doesn't have conditions, and that's how we're to love, without contingencies or conditions. Which is not to say without boundaries. Love requires boundaries, but not conditions. And here's what I mean. Sometimes to love someone we have to set up a fence, we have to set up a boundary. We have to say no. We have to create separation and distance. But that doesn't mean withholding love. It doesn't mean we're creating conditions for love. Love is what drives us to set the boundary. It's a protection. Because we don't love people on their terms, and we don't love them on our terms. We love them on God's terms. So for example, you have a child growing up at the home. He had 17, 18 years old. He gets into self destructive behavior, addicted to drugs or something like that. You got a choice. You're going to keep him in the home, you're going to continue to enable his sin, allow him to be harmful to his brothers and sisters, or you're going to love him enough to create a boundary, to create a line. Say, you can't be here anymore. I'm not going to enable this, not in this house. And I have to protect your brothers and sisters from you. We have to protect this house from you. And we have to protect you from yourself. We're not going to make it easy for you to get your drugs. Love requires boundaries. Now, is he going to think that that's love? No, and it doesn't matter, does it? Because that's love. True or false, the world would be a better place if we could all just love one another. It's not a trick question. True. All you need is love. It's true. It's true. It's just not what he meant. Love's the fulfillment of the law. So what's the problem? The world is a cold, empty, scared place to be. And nobody wants to go first. No one has the guts or the courage or the will or the heart to go first because everybody's already out for themselves and everyone's afraid everybody else is out for themselves. So everybody's all out for themselves and they're definitely out for themselves and I have to be out for myself because nobody's going to protect me. It's a hard, cold, cruel, unforgiving world. And that's how it works. I better just get what I need and protect myself. And that cycle of fear and brokenness is just how the world works. It's the pattern of this world. And then we take the pattern of this world, and even after we become Christians, and we continue it. We bring it into our homes, we bring it into our marriages, we bring it into our churches, because it's all we've ever known. And we simply refuse to love freely. We say, fine, I will love you if you love me. But you go first. And we forget that we serve a God who said, No, I'll go first, me first. While you're my enemies, I'll send my son. He'll be born in a barn. He will walk this earth as a man. He will live, he will suffer, he will love, he will die. I'll make promises you can trust. My promises are true. What I say, I do. What I start, I finish. I am faithful, I am true. And my word, once I have spoken it, is eternal. I go first. Why do we love God? Scripture says because he first loved us. That's why. Why do we love others? Because God loved us first. It's that simple. Christians and Christians alone have the power and the freedom to truly love because we have a God and we serve a God who said, I'll go first. I'll make the first move. And that frees us in each and every relationship that we have on this planet for the very short time that we're here to say, okay, I'll move first. To say to our husbands and our wives and our kids and our parents and our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, even to our enemies, I'll move first. Because God moved first for me. And a lot of marriage is just saying. I'm going to keep moving first. I'll make the first move again. I'll make the next first move. And Christmas is God's declaration to the world that he always makes the first move. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Luke 2, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior, which is Christ the Lord. This is God moving first. This shall be a sign unto you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. God declared peace, he declared it first. He sent his angels to sing it from the stars. The baby laid in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, proves it. If the babe's not enough, behold the man upon the cross. And if the cross isn't enough, go find the tomb. But you won't find him there. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's the banner that hangs over the whole world. And has for 2,000 years. God moved first. So what holds you back from moving first? What more can he give? What more could he do? What more could he say? What more could he pay? Does he owe you something? Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, all the commandments of God, they're just how to love and how not to love. The Ten Commandments are like ten rules for children, ten rules for dummies, ten things that love is not like. Adultery is not like love. It's bad. Adultery, not love. We need it spelled out that simple. Love doesn't look like adultery, guys. It doesn't. Adultery is a taking murder. Love doesn't look like murder. Did you know that? You needed to be told that. Adultery, murder, taking things that stealing, taking things that aren't yours, it's all just taking. It's not love. All the commandments are just how do we love each other? What does it look like? What does it not look like? And it's all summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody have trouble loving themselves? You don't. You don't have trouble loving yourself. Nobody does. Everything we do is an act of self love. Even our self destructive acts are misbegotten attempts to love ourselves. We never stop trying to love ourselves. Love your neighbor as perfectly as you love yourself. Put him first. Stop trying to take, give. When Jesus began his ministry, he sat down and he preached the greatest sermon ever to be preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the very first thing that we taught at this church. I can't wait till we have enough time and space where we can just go back and do it again and pretend like it's never been done. My favorite thing ever. And when Jesus gets to the end of that sermon, after all of his teaching, as he's getting ready to go into his final warnings, he summarizes everything he says in one simple line. What's the line? So, in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Don't play games trying to get what you want from people. Get what you need from God and give others the same kind of love. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. You want others to make the first move? We all do. Make the first move. You want others to put you first? We all do. Put others first. You want other people to consider your wants and desires? We all do. Consider the desires and wants of other people first. Fulfill the law of God and love one another. Okay, now to the end. Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Okay, here's what he's saying We're in the season of Advent now. What we celebrate in Advent are the thousands of years that God's people waited, waited, anticipated patiently the coming of a Messiah who would free them from their guilt and from the power of sin in their lives. And then he came. His name is Jesus, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. And we are now in a different season where Jesus has come, and he has done that work, but he is coming again. And we are to patiently, eagerly anticipate the day that he returns to rid this world of all sin. Everything, every last bit, every last bit of evil in our own hearts, every last bit of evil on this earth. Everyone who makes war against God And Paul writes to the Romans 2,000 years ago, and he says, It's closer now than ever. So, guess what? It's closer now than ever, because that was 2,000 years ago. You know that dumb, they might be giant song? You're older than you've ever been, and now you're. I I won't won't sing it. Yelling's my spiritual gift, not singing. (laughs) You're older than you've ever been, but now you're even older, and now you're even older, and now you're even older. You're older than you've ever been, now you're even older. Now you're even older still. It's true. It's it make you feel good? We're closer than we've ever been. And now we're even closer. So, what does it mean? It means it's time to wake up from sleep. Some of you are asleep. You're tempted to think that the day's not coming, and it is. It's coming for you. The night's far gone, the day is at hand. And you think you can live a life of taking and not be held accountable. You think you can live like the night is going to last forever. Like the darkness that seems to be winning is going to actually win in the end. And it's a lie. Darkness is just the silent bit of nothing before the dawn. It's all. And the day is coming and the sun will shine. And it will penetrate to every corner and every shadow. There is nothing hidden that will remain hidden. Everything hidden will be revealed. Darkness gives the illusion that your deeds can be hidden. And they can for a time. Darkness does hide evil deeds from men, but not from God. Living in darkness is being conformed to this world. And this world is in darkness, but the day is at hand. The light is coming. And he says, wake up, shake off your slumber and get to work. Those of you on whom Christ has shined, you have a call, and that's to live like it's light out, to cast off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, to turn away from the evil deeds of darkness and clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop sleeping and live, not according to the flesh to gratify its desires, but according to the Spirit. Live to please the Lord. Live to show his love to the world. Jesus came down from heaven and clothed himself in humanity so that we could clothe ourselves in him. So that we could be armed against this world and the forces of darkness. Not so that we could sleep or continue to live in darkness, being informed to the pattern of this world. Not so that we would continue to be ruled by our sinful flesh and its selfish, lustful, greedy, drunken, sensual, grasping, quarreling, jealous desires. But so we can be free so that we can love as he has loved, so that we can move first like he moved first to us. So today, as you move into the Christmas season, be mindful of yourself. Don't owe anyone anything. Love as you've been loved. Give as you've been given to. Don't be a taker. Be a giver. Trust God. Have faith. Make the first move. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come during this time of Advent and reflect on the birth of Jesus together and reflect on all that you've given. We thank you, Father, that you moved to us, that you loved us while, you were, while we were your enemies. We pray that you would continue to free us from ourselves, from our sin, from our selfishness. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.